Welcome to Saving UX. I'm your host, Jeremy Kriegel. I believe UX is struggling. Look, there are more people doing the work than ever before, and every company says they are customer focused. So why does it feel so hard? And I don't mean the work, the work can be hard. That's okay. Why does it feel like we have to fight to do the things that will benefit the organizations we serve and the people those organizations serve? I've been in this fight for more than 25 years, and I believe it is a fight worth fighting for, or it's a cause worth fighting for, something like that. UX, done well, and applied to important problems can change the world. Every week I talk to UX veterans about the challenges facing our practice and what we can do to make it better. This week, I'm joined by Jay Bloom, Senior Director at Red Hat and PhD candidate at Carnegie Mellon. Jabe, thank you so much for joining. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Now, we met many years ago, I believe, through the Agile Alliance events. For folks who might not be familiar with you and your work, can you give us maybe just a little bit of background uh, about you know, how, how you got to the field, uh, you know, a little bit about where you are now? Sure. Um, so in college, I studied photography and philosophy. And out of college, I went to New York City and was a software engineer and a chief architect. Um, kind of always been in a position uh, since then of kind of like sitting between designers and the software engineers and trying to like translate between those two kind of very different ways of seeing the world, I think. Um, and then I was a CTO for a while. And uh, after being a CTO, I got recruited to go and hang out at Carnegie Mellon to do my PhD, uh, which is in what's called transition, transformation, transition design. Um, and uh, I study kind of temporality time over very long periods of time, like 200 years and uh, social change. Uh, uh, hopefully how to, how to change, change the, uh, social systems to be more sustainable. So, um, and in relationship to design and materiality and things like that. So that's that's kind of what I what I do. So that's that's quite a shift from uh, your work as a in the technology space. Yeah, I mean, part of honestly, part of even though I've been hanging out with designers and like again, I I'm a trained photographer. Um, lots of kind of visual uh, work in my life. Uh, um, Part of going to CMU was was debugging my my brain of its uh, CTO ishness, uh, frankly, like uh, thinking that technology was going to be the solution to everything, um, and really trying to think through that carefully. Um, and uh, you know, doing you know in, in, in at CMU or kind of in in the university in general, the work I do is is in a in what's called design studies, so philosophy of design. Um, so being very careful, thinking very carefully about exactly what it is we're trying to get done in design. And so that's been really interesting, a really interesting debugging activity for my brain, for sure. So in that time, you said sitting between designers and now kind of thinking about the philosophy of design, how do you look at where the practice is now and what do you see as the, the biggest challenge? Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, I think on one on one hand, it's clearly right that we need um, more humane systems, right? Like we need systems that are more humane. Um, and and, and uh, I think that means uh, more humane as a customer. I mean, I think it means more humane as a user, uh, more humane as an employee, um, as a uh, part of a system, as someone who works in a system. Um, all, all of those things are true. I, I just actually think that a lot of UX and, and human-centered design has an incredibly impoverished view of the human, like what a human is. Um, and so that, to me, is one of the bigger challenges, is trying to really 
reinvigorate uh, our understanding of what it is to be human in the world. Um, and, you know, I think there's a lot of interesting challenges uh, in, in just in that idea of like, what is it to be, what, what is humanism and what is it to be humanistic? And frankly, what is it to be an anti-humanist and understanding better um, that anti-humanism isn't about kind of like being against humans. It's about saying that our experiences extend beyond our human capacities um, and, and trying to figure our way through that as well. I think that's kind of yeah. And maybe one of the bigger problems. So tell me more, when you say an impoverished view of, of humanity or a human, uh, can you go a little bit more into what you mean by that? And and like, what are the gaps we need to fill that would sure. make us less impoverished? <laughs> yeah, sure. I, I, so I think at least initially, um, you know, like, especially from kind of a lean UX perspective where we have kind of a, or... Um, you know, there was a group of people doing Design X, which was another kind of version of this, which is um, kind of scientifically informed design or design science from like Herbert Simon's kind of perspective, where there's this theory um, that there should be a there should be a way of being objective about what we're designing. There should be a way of kind of be able to experiment and kind of knowledge is centered around kind of some sort of scientific structure, scientific knowledge structure, um, and I think that. That's interesting, and we should talk about that more. But I think the problem is that UX um, and design in general is the handmaiden of industry, right? Like we, we as designers have primarily uh, involved ourselves with making um, manufactured objects desirable. That's what we do. We may, we, we, you know, for a very long time, uh, you know, make, make plates and forks and cups and spoons and all these things. We looked at them and we tried to figure out how, how to make them individually functional, but then how to make them into sets of things that work together and had aesthetics and all these things, right? So uh, we, we worked and you can kind of see this through the 20s and the 50s and stuff like this. Uh, we, wor we worked a lot to create a modernist uh, vision of, for instance, a home uh, where things worked together. Uh, and that made it easy to consume those things. It made it so that as consumers, uh, we could go and buy a thing and know that it would kind of fit into an aesthetic that we've kind of been helped to understand. Um, and, I, you know, let's say aesthetic as in like more than just like the way it looks, but like literally the way we experience it, the way that we interact with it. Right. Um, and so, you know, because of that kind of the birth of design inside of industry, um, the view that design has of humans is almost always uh, currently as a consumer, as, you know, someone who consumes things, as someone who purchases things, as someone who desires to consume things. Um, and the question is, like, is that is that actually the best way to understand our humanity or the way that we exist in the world? Is it is it true that the primary lens from which we should view ourselves and other people around us is as as people who purchase or use uh, or is or are there other kind of interesting other ways of kind of trying to understand that and maybe expand our understanding of what it is to be a human i mean that sounds like one of many things that often put design at odds with the business side of things yeah yep 
I think, I mean, uh, you know, I, I have this experience. So I teach uh, at CMU. Uh, I don't teach full classes, but I teach individual classes. I like come in and, and teach this or that. And there's a design studies class. And um, in, in one of the design studies classes, I was kind of going through the thing. And um, we got to a point where this young woman kind of said, um, so like, basically you create an ethical quandary for me. Like I need to understand, should I do this or that in the future? And I said, no, the, you have to now live with the ethical quandary. And, and actually what you're going to have to do is decide not only which side of the ethical quandary you come down on, like, but also whether or not you're going to try to force, you know, to, to inform your work with it. And frankly, to inform the company that you work for with it, like, and that's a challenge, right? Like it's a challenge um, for designers right now to say, I'm not going to build things that are detrimental to human existence. Uh, I don't, I don't believe in that. I, I'm going to fight against that as, as a designer. And, you know, I think it's, you know, as a leverage point, uh, you know, if you want to think about it as a leverage point in, in the economy, um, if designers were to say, we refuse to design certain types of activities or certain projects in the world and, you know, made effectively went on strike against, um, I don't know, disinformation systems, uh, that would be a powerful thing to do. We have a huge amount of leverage, but we we don't do that as 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 a as a kind of group. We don't uh, we don't do that as designers. We we kind of think that like there are maybe unintended consequences of our of our well intended actions, as opposed to you know saying, hey, now this is this pattern here where like you encourage people to become addicted to certain behaviors and then you fill those behaviors with bad information. And that's, that's a predictable pattern and people maybe should stop doing that. I don't know. <laughs> now you talk about like refusing to do the work. I think Mike Montero said, talks to let's put the tools down and yeah. that we have way more power than we think because these companies need us. Um, but we, what we seem to lack is the organizational framework that labor and other movements have had in the past where striking and other, other uh, organized uh, action led to meaningful results. I think it's true. Yeah. I mean, I think we don't have, we don't have the organizational structures. Um, yeah. And, 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 you know, I think that at least to me, part of it is that part of the reason that like I get disconcerted by a lot of this stuff is that designers seem to espouse a certain view of the world. They care about humans. They care about human experiences, user experiences and things like that. But, um, you know, one of the ways they've said it in the past is that design both thinks of itself as power as being powerless and has no idea how much power it has. Like if there's, it's this weird double entendre, right? Like there's this weird double uh, way of thinking of itself where it thinks that like, no, 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 you don't seem to understand. Like I can't design the outcome. Like I can nudge the outcome or I can like shape the outcome, but I can't guarantee you anything as a designer. Uh, that's one side of it. So where it's power, but design in a way is powerless. But on the other hand, clearly design, clearly design has inflicted the, upon the world a massive amount of trash, uh, you know, and, uh, and bad design and bad experiences. Um, and that's just, I mean, design did that design, is definitely responsible for those activities, right? So um, I don't know. I, I think I think 
trying to convince designers, especially young designers, um, that they have a lot more power than they think they do, um, which is not not the same thing as saying that they can define the exact outcome of a design, but that they can uh, significantly affect the world with their actions, I think is is one of the challenges we have. So how would you suggest that people start to own that power? I know one of the comments that I hear over and over from folks is that, as I said in the intro, they don't have permission to do the kinds of work that would enable them to make good decisions, to be able to make the case to uh, product and leadership on on what people need and what should be done. They're kind of kind of forced into these little little UI boxes of, of make us an artifact that represents this, this sure, little yeah. feature over here. Yeah. Um, I mean, one, one of the things that I spend a lot of time kind of talking to people about, cause like part of, part of my life is being a DevOps person, like being in the DevOps world. Right. Um, which was a conversation between developers and operators, right? Like it's a conversation that says, Hey developers, you, you need to understand the impact you're having on the lives of operators. Right. And and I have this like very standard story I tell about it, which is not a story. It's a true story or it is a story. It's just a true story. It's not a made up story. I guess. Um, so I was the CTO of a company and we made library software and my boss came into my office and said, I think we make the best library software on the planet. I said, damn straight. We, we redesigned this thing from scratch. It's beautiful. But yeah, and you know, the sales sales VP thinks this is the best thing on the market, has never had a better time selling things. Damn straight, we listen, we worked with sales very closely, we listen to the market a lot. And I think it's a beautiful software too. Like it's really well designed, it's like gorgeous. And like, yes, damn straight. I I hired really good uh arc, you know, software designers, uh really good visual designers, and and I'm a photographer, so I I have good taste. I did a really good job on that too. He's like, damn straight, you did. And he looked at me and said, So have you ever can I ask you a question? Have you ever been here on the weekend after you do a release? Like, what do you mean? It's like, you know, you release the software, like you send the software out to our support department. And they have to install it on the boxes of our customers. I was like, no, I haven't, I haven't been here. What is, what, what is? And he said, you should come. And I did. I went and it was uh, I, the, the, the support staff, who, by the way, were, there was a, as many people in my support department as there were software engineers. And they didn't leave the building for 48 hours. Wow. Um, and it was just... To me, that was my first kind of, you know, I call it WX worker experience, right? It was like my first real, like, I have designed a system that harms people, <laughs> that makes people's lives worse. Um, and it, and part of it that I knew immediately was it wasn't just, like, I felt bad that these people that worked for us were having a bad experience and their families were having a bad experience because their parents couldn't come home and all that kind of stuff. But also our customers the reason why these people stayed is because the customers were having a bad experience too. Like, wow, I really didn't really understand, um, you know, the implications of operating the software I was building. And so I think um, the reason to say that is that I think designers need to kind of think through the conversation from that perspective as well. They need to be involved in these kind of um, conversations where they, they understand the implications of their design on developers, on operators, first of all, um, as well as customers. It needs to expand in that direction. Um, and second of all, I think, uh, you know, 
there's a, there's a paper called the four orders of design, right? And I think most designers would do well to kind of familiarize themselves with the paper because it kind of talks about the idea that design started out as like symbols and signs, right? So like designers did design books and fonts and things like this. And then they did products and then they did product families or product systems and the manufacturer product systems. And now what they're doing is the design of social systems, right? And so to understand that the way to create a, a, a place in which their work is heard better is, is partially to, to literally turn the design tools towards the social systems that they're part of. Yeah. Um, and that becomes an important and critical aspect of it. Um, and I think, you know, part of that has to do with, um, there's an idea um, called epistemic injustice and epistemic injustice is from a, a woman named uh, Miranda Fricker. And she kind of talks about this idea that um, not everybody's voices are heard at the same in the same way, right? And that that um, being heard becomes important for not only other people to enrich their lives, but for you to be able to make sense of the world for yourself. Um, and so she tells a very interesting kind of version of the story that I think is useful for designers to think about. Um, she basically says, you know, uh, sexual assault or, or sexual violence or however you want to kind of put it um, wasn't a term. It didn't like, or, there was a time when that, like the idea of someone harassing you, sexual harassment wasn't, wasn't a thing. It doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It just wasn't a word. And uh, so this woman was working in a lab in Florida and she felt uncomfortable by the the way that her boss who was a man was treating her, but she couldn't describe it well and she didn't know what to do about it, but she felt uncomfortable enough that she quit. And then about three or four months later, she came back to the university and sat down with a bunch of lawyers at the university who were women and tried to say like, I feel like it's not fair that I had to quit. I feel like that wasn't right. But I, and in her description of the events, these these women, these other lawyers, were like, that happened to me too. <laughs> like, that that they had this recognition in the telling of the story that this was a thing that was happening to women. Um, and then they gave it a name, sexual harassment. And now women could make sense of their experiences because they had a way of describing, right? And this has to do with something called hermeneutics. Like, I can locate myself in the story that I've heard already and I can actually modify the story too, right? So it's a way of being part of the story. And and what Fricker basically says is that um, it's 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 a it's like unjust or it's it's um, not fair when people's testimony when they what they say about the world isn't um, taken as valid. Um, and so I think that one of the ways to kind of think through that from a design perspective and to kind of get back to your question about like. How do designers engage in this stuff? Um, how do they engage uh, the their bosses better? Is to really um, to stop trying to explain design as a form of science. Stop trying to like fit ourselves into the dominant narrative of of how business works, <laughs> and say no, this is a different way of knowing about the world, and it's just as important and just as valid as you know using science or kind of scientific methodologies um and the way i know about the world through doing design research and qualitative research and these these activities that i do um they will help 
the business serve our customers better directly. And um, I don't need to re-explain it to you by scientifying it. I don't need to make it into a scientific experiment. I don't need to make it into a business case. It's another form of information. Um, and you should take it seriously. You should, uh, you should realize that it's, uh, it is a valid and um, equally important way of knowing about the world. So I don't know if that helps. It almost sounds like you're asking people to just take it on faith that the that if you if you have add this worldview to to the work that things are going to get better. Yeah, I do think that's right. I think um, so. One of the ways to the, the, uh, some of this comes from what what, what is called the third way view, right? And and what we mean by this is like the modern university, for instance, is broken into the humanities and the sciences, and these are two viewpoints on the world. One is descriptive of the world using things like narrative and art and things like this, but it's describing the world. Yeah. And the other one is descriptive of the world using kind of scientific um, kind of frames and predictability and things like this. And, um, and the idea is to say that um, both of those tend to be descriptions of what is, what already exists, what is true about the world or if you're doing humanities uh, about like science fiction, uh, you're still as a as a researcher. What you're researching is the text that exists. You're not researching an imaginary text. You're researching something that already exists. Design um, research is what does not yet exist. That's what it does. It's this a very strange idea in a lot of ways. Is that design is always propositional. It always is proposing what should be. That's what it does uniquely. Now. Sometimes in order to do that, it needs to use other methods, the scientific method or the methods of humanities to describe what is in order to imagine what could be. Um, but design in itself is is a unique uh, epistemic experience. It is a unique epistemic process. It, it produces proposals. It doesn't produce descriptions. Um, and because of that, uh, Everybody does it because everybody in the world who like thinks about how they want their room to be or what posters they want to hang up, any sort of prefigurative activity, any sort of like imagination of what that's all designing. Yeah. And uh, and so designers uh, need to like need to hold on to that claim and say that this is like not only is it like a valid way of knowing about the world, but everybody does it. But for some reason in business, we don't do it well. Um, uh, we try to use, again, um, scientific methods um, and kind of narrative-based methods um, to describe things without understanding how that propositional uh, system works. I guess. So I want to go back to, there's a couple of things I'd love to follow up on in that, uh, that, screen, that uh, stream there. Um, one of them, you know, and I, I, I hope I'm not uh, degrading the term, you know, you talked about how before there was the language for sexual harassment, yep. um, it was hard to describe because we didn't have the right, we didn't have a good term for it. Yep. Um, are there things that in the world of design, we are struggling to communicate that we just don't have good language for yet. And that is impeding our ability to be effective. Yeah. I think uh, often it's, it's like erasure is what's happening in design. It's, it's that we adopt other um, languages or other ideas and then assume that they're well thought through 
which I think is hilarious because I think it's one of the problems. But this is, designing in itself has this inherent problem, which is that when people see a designed object, they think, oh, somebody thought this through. I don't have to think this through. I just need to understand how to use it, which is really problematic on some level because uh, if when it becomes reflexive, when it becomes a loop, it's self-sealing. It kind of hides the exploratory parts of how the designer came to understand the object itself, right? So sometimes they say like, you know, you design something, you get to the end of the designing and you like have this thing that you cherish now as the designer, but you've forgotten how you found it. And then you give it to someone else and go, look at this beautiful thing I made. And they go, what is it? <laughs> You're like, clearly it is the thing. Well, you've had all that kind of lead up to it. So I think there's there's that. Mm. There's kind of this weird way in which design is self-sealing, um, self-concealing, that type of stuff. Um, but like a perfect example of this, I think, is like, uh, and, and, you know, I'm going to be really general because, uh, you know, for a general audience, but like Maslow's hierarchies, uh, kind of infection of the understanding of user needs. Um it's a terrible, A, it's terribly misunderstood, I think, in general, but B, it's like a terribly impoverishing view of what human needs are. So like, I would, I would suggest to everybody who thinks that Mac, uh, that, that um, that's a good, Maslow's good, go read Max Neef immediately and try to get some understanding of like a, a richer version of human needs. Um, because again, if we're here to serve human needs as designers, if we don't have a clarity about what need is and what value is, and by the way, those are very difficult ideas to understand, um, we're probably going to screw it up a couple of times. And I think we have. So that might be an example. Does that make sense? Can you give me an example of the the Maslow and, and the other, who's the other author you mentioned? Uh, Max Neef is, is the other Neef. one. So, um, the the main difference is is Maslow kind of thinks about things as being hierarchical, right? So that like there's you have to have the base level things in order to have the top level things. Um, and so you know the easiest kind of version of this is is like the top is is enlightenment, right? Like which is uh, always worried about things that have enlightenment or wisdom at the top of their pyramid. It always seems a little fishy to me, but anyway. Um, and then there's things below that that you're required to have, right, in order to get to enlightenment. But like, like Sufi monks or and monks and like all sorts of people who claim to have enlightenment are like, I don't have any of those things on the lower rungs of Maslow at all. I don't. None of those things are things that I had to get. Um, I sat, you know, in the carnal yard and watched people's bodies burn while meditating. And and I am practically starving to death. Uh, I haven't solved any of those basic level needs, but I feel like I'm enlightened. So, like, there's some distortion there happening. Obviously, you, like most people probably want to have some of the basic things done, but you don't need them. Um, so there's hierarchy, uh, universality. Like, there's nothing in 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 uh, Maslow that talks about the idea that these aren't universally true, that not they don't apply everywhere, um, and then. The last one, you know, really obvious kind of difference to me between Neef and, and Aslo is Neef talks about the difference between authentic and inauthentic needs. In other words, the idea that designers don't simply like satisfy needs. Like we don't just satisfy needs. It's not like the needs are out there like in abstraction floating around and we like locate them and then we satisfy them. No, we create needs. We 
we we create feedback loops that cause consumption. That's what we do. We we uh, we regularly put stuff out into the world uh, that we know isn't complete, and then we're just like, we'll get around to fixing that later with another product or another way, of, and that's creating needs, right? Um, and there's a huge amount of technology, you know, and you can see this inside of IT, but you can see this outside of IT, just in the world in general, where there's there's some question about how much human labor um, involved in, for instance, IT is involved in satisfying the needs of the technology versus the users. Like li- the people yeah, are serving absolutely. the technology, not the users. Um, so how do you how do you like work through those systems of need and value? And understand the implications of what you've designed, uh, and and how you might design them differently. I came across something recently while we're talking about Maslow that he had been, I suppose, the most generous way you could put it, heavily influenced by uh, an indigenous tribe, and how they talked about uh, this topic. Though, if I recall correctly, he got it backwards, and they believe that you start as a complete human. You don't need to achieve that. You start as a complete human. And the uh, the steps were more about community. Yeah. So he actually, he inverted yep. their pyramid. Yep. Uh, I'll try and find a link for that and I'll post it in the show notes. Yeah. I mean, the other great one is there's a great uh, uh, article about the idea that Max Neef never drew it as a pyramid either. That, that is a visualization that occurred after his death, mm-hmm. um, which I think is also very interesting. That wraps up part one of my conversation with Jay Bloom, Senior Director in the Global Transformation Office at Red Hat and a PhD candidate at Carnegie Mellon University. Tune in next week for the second half. Have questions or comments about this episode? Join the conversation with Shuffle. You can download the app for iOS or Android at getshuffle.app slash savingux or at the link on the show notes page at sucks.live. That's S-U-X for savingux dot live. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes like the rest of this conversation. You can listen on most major podcast platforms as well as watch videos of the conversations on YouTube. You can also follow me on Twitter at Sonarc, S-O-N-A-R-C, or on LinkedIn. I post show updates on both platforms. If you prefer old-fashioned email updates, you can sign up for those at sucks.live. Until next time, I'm Jeremy Kriegel, and this has been Saving UX. Thank you.